Well, good morning, Vertical Life Church. How are all the V-lifers today? Get your exercise in, taking that walk from the parking lot. It was a surprise to us this morning, uh, but uh, God seems to always provide a way, so we're thankful that you chose to spend some time with us today. If there are any guests with us today, we want to say welcome. My name is Joey. I'm the lead pastor here. We want to just uh, welcome you to our church, and hopefully your time with us today will be an encouragement to you. Um, as we uh, just continue in our series today in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, just before we get started, I want to encourage everyone, uh, as we've been doing the last few weeks, if you have Facebook on your phone or any social media apps that you can check in and give a shout out about our church, uh, that'll help spread the word about what God is doing here and maybe create some conversations you can have with those that you work with or in your, in your sphere of influence that you interact with online and uh, maybe begin having those conversations about your relationship with Jesus and what God can do in their lives as we want to really focus on engaging our community this week or in this year. Um, we're continuing again uh, in our series, Confessions of a Sinner. Last week, we studied how Jesus conferred his authority, the authority he had from on high to, to do miracles, to uh, have victory over the enemy and, and over the things that he came across. He conferred that authority on his disciples so that they could do kingdom ministry, so they could go out and preach the gospel, preach the kingdom of God had come, and show the power of that message through signs and wonders. And now through our faith in the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that empowered those disciples resides in everyone who has called on the name of Jesus Christ for their Savior. And so with that same spirit, we too have the very same authority to declare the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven has come and do so with that faith, that powerful and miraculous faith. And uh, we've been given the same spirit, we've been given the same message and the same ministry of those first disciples. And it's so very important that we not only identify the spiritual gift the Holy Spirit has given us, because every follower of Christ has been given a unique gift or many gifts, but it's also important for us not just to identify those, but to learn to walk in them, to, to use those gifts, to walk in the power in the presence of the Holy Spirit of God uh, as we fan our gifts into flame, to help encourage our church to have greater faith, to honor God more with all that we are, and to demonstrate his love in a powerful way to those who are far from him in this world. And uh, as we looked last week, we saw that uh, they were given this authority, the, these gifts for a purpose. There is a reason authority is given to those who believe. The Holy Spirit doesn't just decide, well, it's going to be fun to give them some gifts, so I'll do that. No, there is a reason that we're given power from God to do ministry. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit empowers our faith, and we are going to discover what that is today. We're going to take a look in the scripture. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 10 and also 12 for the most part today. So if you have your Bible with you or your digital Bible, you can uh, mark your place there. But we're going to be covering a lot of scripture because we have to set the foundation. We have to unpack what the Bible says about this very subject, about why we are given authority from on high. And so if you have your worship guide with you, there's a section for notes. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of references, things you might want to refer back to in your own study as you uh, um, allow God to um, spark something in you today to carry on into your life. But um, here, just after Jesus confers his authority onto his disciples in uh, the Matthew chapter 10, 
and he sends them out to begin their miraculous ministry, he gives them some very clear instructions. He doesn't just say, here's some power, go do something with it. No, he gives them some clear instructions about how to go about their ministry. And then he warns them about things they are about to encounter as they go out to do this ministry. We see this beginning in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says this, he says, look, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. It's an interesting phrase. In essence, what he tells them, he says, as snakes are sly, as they are cunning, they're very strategic and cautious in their hunt for food, as they they go out to, to feed themselves, you too, as my follower, need to be cautious and wise. You need to be strategic in your approach to ministry. But your ministry is not going to be one that brings harm like a serpent. You are not going to be the predator like the snake. You will be the prey like the dove. You will be the sheep among wolves. In other words, this ministry I'm calling you to do, it's not going to be an easy cakewalk. You need to be ready. You need to be mentally and spiritually ready. You need to be steadfast because what you are going to do is you are getting ready to go through the fire. Just for being my followers and preaching my message, doing what I've called you to do, you are getting ready to go through the fire. And so often as Christians, as we look at our spiritual lives and we look at our involvement in church and what, what we like to see happen with our faith, we, we desire, we have this deep desire to be comfortable. To be comfortable, to not, not be stretched, not be asked to do things that are outside of what we feel is comfortable. And that everything that we, we do in our life, everything that we plan for, God is just supposed to make easy. That God's supposed to just make our way easy. That he's supposed to keep us from all harm and all negativity because we've become believers in Jesus Christ. And this is why many have such a hard time just living the Christian life. Because we experience so much pain and so much trouble. And this is why so many churches have problems with change. Because it's uncomfortable and it's stressful. When you become set in your ways and things begin to stretch you, instead of embracing it, we resist it. Because deep down, we just want to be left alone and stay in our comfort. Because we like our comfort. But Jesus tells his disciples here, what I'm sending you to do is not going to be all rosy. You're going to experience some pain, especially as people rise up against you. But you have nothing to fear. Even though trouble is on its way, trial is on its way, opposition is on its way, you have nothing to fear because you are exceedingly valuable to God and he will be with you every step of the way, guiding you and working through you. And as we can read through the rest of chapter 10, we see he encourages them all the way through the end of chapter 10 by revealing that the sacrifices they're going to make will not be in vain. There will be miracles performed, and there will be those who accept the message of the kingdom, those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But at the same time, as he's instructing his disciples, he doesn't want them to get the wrong idea. He's not painting them a picture that probably many of us imagine whenever we believe God is calling us to do something or calling us into ministry. I know for me, when uh, Tony and I were first contemplating starting this church, uh, the tendency for me was to imagine all the best and greatest things that could happen, that we were going to have explosive growth and be up upwards of a thousand people in just a few short years. God was going to be saving the masses and just everything was going to be great. I didn't imagine that there would be much struggle or challenge to do what God was calling us to do. 
I thought if we were faithful, then God was just going to bless, and we were just going to get out of his way and watch him do amazing things. And I think as people, we all seem to, always seem to get caught up imagining and envisioning the best possible scenario while ignoring the reality. And the tone Jesus takes here with his disciples, here is one of warning. He's warning them that they aren't getting ready to walk into blessing, even though they're going to be blessed for their faith. He warns them because they are getting ready to enter into battle. In verse 32 of chapter 10, here's what Jesus says. He says, Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Anyone who receives you receives me. And anyone who receives me receives the Father who sent me. These words from Jesus are strong. And at first glance, it doesn't sound like they're coming from the ever-loving, non-judgmental Jesus that many of us in this culture and in this world have grown up with in their Sunday school lessons. That Jesus just, his blonde hair, blue eyes, and his arms are always open, and come to me all he who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No, this phrase, this declaration from Jesus sounds more like the ones who, those who are far from God, who don't believe in God, this is the impression that they have of who God is in the Old Testament, a mean old tyrant who in fits of anger wipes out people off the face of the earth. Sounds like a, a warrior God. And this sounds contradictory to what our understanding of who God is. It, it sounds like that what Jesus meant to say earlier was not that you need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but more like you need to be wise as serpents and harmful as serpents. Because it seems like from this passage, he's sending them out to tear families apart, not restore and bring them together. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is Jesus really saying to his disciples? What is the word that he's really communicating here? Has Jesus really come to tear families apart? Has he come to send his disciples into the world to create chaos, to increase pain and suffering? And you know, that doesn't seem logical because we know he was sending his disciples out to cast out demons, and to heal the sick, to help people, to help, not to hurt. So what does he mean? What is he saying here? The context of these statements aren't actually found here in Matthew chapter 10. They're found in the Old Testament in the writings of the prophet Micah. Jesus is actually referring to an Old Testament prophecy. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, the prophet Micah, uh, he reveals the will of God for people. He says, No, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That this is God's will for his people, that we are to be an honorable people who walk in righteousness, sacrificially serve our neighbors, and pursue a very intimate and close relationship with our Heavenly Father. 
But at the time of the writing of Micah's prophecy, Israel had departed from God's will. In the very next chapter, in Micah chapter 7, he begins to describe the state of their spiritual life. He begins to kind of describe the state of Israel. And this is also a foreshadow of things to come. I believe what Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 10. In Micah 7, beginning in verse 1, this is what the Lord says through the prophet. He says, How miserable I am. I feel like the fruit picker after the harvest who can find nothing to eat. Not a cluster of grapes or a single early fig can be found to satisfy my hunger. The godly people have all disappeared. Not one honest person is left on the earth. They're all murderers, setting traps even for their own brothers. Both their hands and are equally skilled at doing evil. Officials and judges alike demand bribes. The people with influence get what they want, and together they scheme to twist Justice. Sounds like America. Even the best of them is like a briar, and the most honest is as dangerous as a hedge of thorns. And here he says, But your judgment day is coming swiftly now. Your time of punishment is here, a time of confusion. Don't trust anyone, not your best friend or even your wife. For the son despises his father, the daughter defies her mother, the daughter-in-law defies her mother-in-law, and your enemies are right in your own household. So the prophet Micah, through the inspiration of God, hearing from God and writing this letter to the people of Israel, he reveals to us that a time of judgment is coming soon. The time of punishment has come upon the people, which will be described as a time of confusion. And if you remember in our study back in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus referred to his generation as a helpless and confused people. The prophet Micah is revealing here that, and Jesus confirms in Matthew chapter 10, that his first coming, the first time Jesus Christ comes on the earth and the preaching of the kingdom of heaven, it was going to do something. It was going to start something. It was going to create disorder in the form of confusion because it was going to begin a war of the worlds as two kingdoms began to clash. And no, not Israel and Rome. It's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul refers to Satan as the god of this world. He's the leader, the ruler of this world. We know that there is only one God. We know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But ever since the fall of man, ever since we brought sin into the world, when Adam sinned, Satan set up his own kingdom here on the earth. And because the introduction of sin into the world created this curse of death, Satan has been using that curse to wield his plans and to advance his kingdom. In other words, he has hijacked ownership of the earth from mankind into his own power. And we can see him exercising this hijacked authority all through the scripture and uh, and readily here in Job chapter 1, verse 6 through 7, it says, One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser Satan came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered, the Lord said, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Ever since the fall, he's been presiding over his possession, patrolling it as a guard watches over his estate. The Apostle Paul reveals to us, to us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. He says, You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. Another translation says the prince of the power of the air. And he's at work, he's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. 
Here the Apostle Paul is telling us that when we are living in pursuit of sin, which is the state that everyone before coming to faith in Christ is in, that we are living in obedience to the devil. Why? Because he's the ruler of the world. We were doing his will because we were born under authority, his authority. Since the fall, Satan has been advancing his kingdom, blinding people so they can't come to realize the truth in order to unleash more sin, more suffering, and more death into the world. And that's why Jesus came, to smash open the door so that the truth of God could come flooding in and people could be set free from the kingdom of Satan. In John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, he says, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus came to free us from the kingdom of the enemy. When you know and you follow Jesus Christ, you will be free from the power of the devil and the curse of sin and death. Jesus did come to bring a sword, but not to harm people or to, to destroy families. He came to deliver us from the hand of the devil. And the sword he was using, Paul reveals to us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, that the sword of the Spirit is the very word of God. The preaching of the kingdom of God is the sword he was bringing. The very word of God, the source of all truth, is the sword he would use to deliver the people from the kingdom of Satan. And this sword was going to make people choose sides. Sin and Satan or Jesus. And that choosing sides would create confusion. And the coming of that confusion would manifest itself as turmoil, turmoil between families, friends, and even nations. If a person was going to be rescued, Jesus was going to provide the way, but the individual would have to choose between their old life in the kingdom of Satan or letting go of all the attachments, all their previous attachments to follow Jesus into the new kingdom. And for some of us, that's really not such a big deal. If you grow up in a free country with parents who already believe in Christ and provide you a spiritual home that points to Jesus Christ, it's not that difficult. But for others, such as our Middle Eastern brothers and sisters that grow up in countries that are controlled by Islamic uh, governances and Sharia law, that's a whole other story. Very similar to the, what we see in the news today is what would happen back in the time of Christ if a Jew was to convert to Christianity because they could be stoned in the street for blasphemy. Jesus is telling his disciples here that this confusion, this disruption is going to come because when you preach the truth, it's going to disrupt the kingdom of the enemy. People are going to have to choose, which simply means that we can no longer have our sin and our salvation too. Even though that's a popular belief in our culture today, if we're following the devil in pursuit of sin, we can't be following Jesus. And the same is also true. If we were following Jesus, we will be walking in the power of his spirit, which leads us away from sin through repentance. It breaks his power, the power of Satan in our lives. According to abrahamlincolnonline.org, on June 16th, 1858, more than 1,000 delegates met in Springfield, Illinois, the State House for the Republican State Convention. At 5 p.m., they chose Abraham Lincoln as their candidate for the U.S. Senate, running against Democrat Stephen A. Douglas. At 8 p.m., Lincoln delivered this address to his Republican colleagues in the Hall of Representatives. The title reflects part of the speech's introduction. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Lincoln's friends regarded the speech as too radical for the occasion. His law partner, William H. 
uh, Herndon dis- uh, considered Lincoln as morally courageous but politically incorrect. Lincoln read the speech to him before delivering it, referring to the house divided language this way, that the proposition is indisputably true and I will deliver it as written. I want to use some universally known figure expressed in simple language as universally known that it may strike home to the minds of men in order to rouse them to the peril of the times. Reflecting on it several years later, Herndon said the speech did awaken the people and despite Lincoln's defeat, he thought the speech made him president. Through logic... Inductively seen, he said, Lincoln, as a statesman and a political philosopher, announced an eternal truth, not only as broad as America, but covers the world. And here's an excerpt of the speech that Lincoln gave. It says, Mr. President and gentlemen of the convention, if we could first know where we are and whether we are attending, we could then better judge what to do and how to do it. We are now far into the fifth year since a policy was initiated with the avowed object and confident promise of putting an end to slavery agitation. Under the operation of that policy, that agitation has not only not ceased, but has constantly augmented. In my opinion, it will not cease until a crisis has been reached and passed. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will either become all one thing or all the other. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in the course of ultimate extinction, or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become alike lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north, as well as south. This one speech was a defining moment, not only for Lincoln's career as a politician in our history, but also for American history itself, because we can point back to this very moment in time where the end of slavery has its roots. Lincoln's famous words, a house divided against itself cannot stand, echoes through the pages of history as we retell that story to future generations again and again. But those famous words of Lincoln didn't originate with Lincoln. In Matthew chapter 12, a story of a healing of Jesus, it says, beginning in verse 22, it says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. He healed the man so that he could both speak and see. The crowd was amazed and asked, Could it be that Jesus is the Son of God or Son of David, the Messiah? But then the Pharisees heard about the miracle, and they said, No wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and replied, Any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. In other words, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A town or a family splintered by feuding will fall apart, and if Satan is casting out Satan, he is divided and fighting against himself. His own kingdom will not survive. Abraham Lincoln, our One of our founding fathers, one of our most highly respected presidents, is quoting directly from Jesus in his infamous speech. And Jesus here in Matthew chapter 12 reveals to us that Satan has a kingdom. It's real and it exists. And we are at war with it. Paul tells the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2, warning us about this war. He says, we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and the authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. There is a reason 
why Jesus gave his disciples and now confers to us authority through the Holy Spirit. There's a reason why Jesus makes a big deal about the unity of the church in the scriptures and the apostles encourage the church to stay in unity because it is true. A house divided cannot stand. If the church is divided, we won't have the strength and the power to win the war. Lincoln also references another saying of Jesus inadvertently in his speech. He says that the union can't be both slave and ex-slave, pro-slave and ex-slave. It will either become all or nothing. And as was observed in that time, it was becoming more and more pro-slave. And Jesus tells us that we cannot serve two masters. We will love the one and we will hate the other. And one of the reasons why we see powerless churches and powerless Christians is because our faith has become divided. We want the benefits of salvation coupled with the pleasures of sin. Not just what we'd call the big sins like murder and adultery and things of that nature, but even the overlooked sins like greed, selfishness, self-centeredness, laziness in our spiritual lives. And as long as the church has a divided mind and a divided purpose, the kingdom of Satan will be able to continue its advance because the kingdom of Satan is unified. They're not divided. They have an expressed goal, and Jesus reveals it to us in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his goal. Everything Satan does Everything he commands his angels, his spirits to do is for one purpose, and that is to ruin you, period. Before the cross, he had little opposition, but now, because the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he can't do everything he plans as long as we are walking in unity and in the authority of Jesus Christ as we go out exercising our faith in his name. He's afraid, the church. So Satan has to distract us, to divide us, because to divide us is to weaken us. If we're too busy arguing about music and carpet color and all the petty things that churches fight over, we can't be fighting the forces of evil together. If we're being lazy with our faith, we can't be taking back the ground Satan has hijacked due to the fall through our sin. Understanding how the kingdom of Satan works is so important for us as a church because so many people have chosen to ignore or stop believing altogether that the enemy is even out there working against us in our lives and in our ministries. We've allowed people to create a mockery of those who believe the devil made me do it so now that anyone that claims a, a demonic influence is somehow crazy and just a lunatic and doesn't know what's going on. And we discount, we dismiss anything having to do with evil in our world. In the scripture, we have so many descriptions of the way Satan tries to bring us to destruction. Primarily, he has his own set of angels. The Bible calls evil spirits. And these spirits operate as messengers of evil. As God sends his angels to be messengers of good and hope and peace and love and for protection, he sends his messengers out to do evil and accomplish evil in our lives. And even though as a child of God, if you believe in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in your heart, you cannot be possessed by an evil spirit because the enemy cannot overthrow God in your life. But you can be oppressed by a spirit through committing sin and remaining unrepentant in your life. 
Sin is like an open door to the enemy. The Apostle Paul says, don't let sin draw you to anger because it provides a foothold to the devil. When we sin, we open doors and basically throw out the uh, open for business sign to the enemy to come in and begin working in our life. So even though biblically we understand that God rules it all, he is sovereign over all, demons have been set free to do as they please as long as there's no direct opposition from God. This is a result of the consequences of sin existing in the world. And we see their handiwork all through the scripture. We see how they work in the lives of people all through the Bible and specifically related to some specific things. The Bible labels these spirits and attaches to them their method of operation. And we're just going to list several here for you. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2, we see the spirit of rebellion against God. This spirit wants you to live in sin. So he wants to wound you and cause you to bring affliction in your life in order to lead you to destruction. And destruction that comes, he does it in a way that makes it self-inflicted. Paul tells us what a person's life looks like who's under the control of this spirit of rebellion. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 23, the spirit leads you to follow your sinful nature. It says in verse 19, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. This is a description of the way the spirit of rebellion works in the hearts of people when we open that door through sin, and we all have sin. All of us have at one time, and maybe today, we'll do something against God because we have this sinful nature that we're wrestling about, and not repenting of those sins, not closing those doors is an open invitation for the enemy to continue to work in your life. The difference between a child of God and a child of Satan is the conviction of sin and repentance. God's people repent. A child of God will grieve over the sin in their life and they will walk away from that sin. They'll pursue a life of holiness and ask God's forgiveness. A child of Satan will continue to pursue and cling on to their sin. And the important fact here is that all these attitudes that the Apostle Paul and all these actions that the Apostle Paul just lifted, uh, listed, they're self-inflicted. Things that we decide to do on our own. You see, if the spirit of rebellion can get you to pursue after these things... And, let, and get you to pursue these sins, and these sins will fill your life, you'll be under his influence and control, and he won't even have to lift a finger to make you do it. See, those without Jesus have no choice to follow their sinful nature and to obey Satan because they don't have the Spirit of God or the truth of God in them leading them another way. Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, we see territorial spirits. These are spirits that lay claim to regional areas. They act like regional governors over geographical places. And that's why oppression and suffering, we can see, are more apparent in some parts of the world than the others. And I believe, and I know many do, that, that even our state, our city, some of our locations, Genesee County and others, have had a lot of depression, a lot of suffering. You walk, drive down downtown Detroit and see all the magnificent buildings and things that were once you know, the pinnacle of man's creation are now just a wasteland of condemned buildings and, and destruction. You can see the work of the enemy even in our own communities, in our own state. 
Jesus reveals to us in Scripture that some spirits are more powerful than others and, and that some can only be overcome through intense prayer and fasting, that even simply just declaring Jesus' name is not enough, that it takes the people of God to do some intense seeking of God in order to uh, overcome these spirits. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, the, uh, the word of the Lord records this. He says, If my people humble themselves and pray, seek his face and turn from their wicked ways, that God will then heal their land. To overcome territorial spirits, the people of God and the people of that region need to, in a desperate pursuit of God and holiness, to seek his face in order to remove him. The scripture says, If we resist the enemy, then he will flee from us. And it takes an active pursuit of repentance and the seeking of God and living in holiness to overcome these territorial spirits. In Isaiah chapter 19, verse 14, we see a spirit of foolishness. This word foolishness literally means distorting, perverting, or warping. It's confusion. Confusion, confusing everything, which is what I believe is something that we're seeing more and more in our world and in the nation's in the world, especially as we see confusion with sexual sin, gender identity, and relationships and responsibilities and things that have been historically held as being universal truths. Isaiah 29.10, we see a spirit of deep sleep. The scripture here says that he has closed the eyes of your prophets and your visionaries. This deep sleep is a spiritual trance. This spirit creates a wall that closes off a person's access or a sense of connection to God where they're unable to hear from him. Has there ever been a time in your life where you have felt far from God and it seems like your prayers have just hit a brick wall? That could be evidence of this spirit working in your life. And Daniel, uh, when he's wrestling with this territorial spirit, says the spirit resisted the angel from bringing God's message to him. It presents you from hearing God and feeling the closeness of God in your life. We not only see this in Daniel, but Peter warns us in the church especially for husbands, not to treat your wives harshly because your prayers will become hindered. It's the evidence of this spirit of deep sleep. Ezekiel 23, verse 8, we see an influence of the spirit of prostitution. Works out a promiscuous and lustful, uninhibited desires in the world. Zechariah 13, verse 2, is a spirit of impurity. Influences all manner of idolatry, getting you obsessed with things that have nothing to do with God or living for the kingdom of God. Uh, the worship of self and exaltation, the worship of demons and the activities that accompany them. We see also evil spirits that affect your health and your physiology. In Mark chapter 1, verse 26, we see a spirit that brings about seizures. In Luke 8, 29, we see possessing spirits create erratic behavior and bring supernatural abilities like supernatural strength. In Mark 9, 17 and Mark 9, 25, we see a spirit that creates muteness and deafness. In the book of Acts, Acts 16, 16, we see a spirit of prophecy, a, a spirit possessed or indwelled this woman, giving her the ability to foretell future events. That's why the Apostle Paul warns us not to just accept any prophecy that we hear, but to test it by uh, aligning it up with the Word of God. So we're not dismayed or dissuaded by false prophets. In Mark 9, 22, we see a suicidal and murderous spirit. Spirit threw a man into the fire, into a water, trying to kill him. Have you wrestled with thoughts of suicide or, or severe depression? Could be evidence of a spirit working in your life. Luke 6.18, Luke 7.21, we see a spirit of sickness where all manner of sickness and disease is connected to the work of the devil. 
Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, we see a spirit of apostasy or a spirit that brings about the rejection of the truth. It, it doesn't want anything to do with the truth of God. Colossians 2, 20 through 21, and we see a spirit of religion and legalism. The scripture says, you've died with Christ. He set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, and don't touch? It's a spirit of religion and legalism. 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul reveals a spirit that works uh, towards fear and, in, and timidity. Are you afraid? Do you suffer with severe anxiety? 1 John 4.3 is the spirit of antichrist. It's the spirit that influences atheism. Atheism is not just a false belief or a belief that rejects God. It is a demonic belief that commands and demands people reject God. Revelation 6.14, we see a spirit of miracles, of uh, miraculous deception. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we see a spirit of spiritual blindness that prevents people from being able to uh, respond or accept the truth of God. It makes it difficult for people to choose to believe in the gospel because he's blinding their eyes. He's, he's preventing them from capturing the truth. And we have to understand that this is just some of the ways the enemy is at work in our lives. He's in work so many ways in this world. And because we've dismissed or ignored his work in the world and in our lives for so long, many have allowed him to continue to steal, kill, and destroy. To allow him to implement this steal, kill, and destroy plan in our lives, keeping us in a state of faith crisis, not of power, love, and self-control that Paul tells us the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. And as long as we are in a faith crisis, our world will continue to experience the full wrath of the enemy, the fallout of this steal, kill, and destroy plan. He'll continue taking ground in many of our lives and in our families and in the lives of those far from God because he's convinced many of us that either he doesn't exist or we can't do anything about what he's doing in the world. And he's used our current technological climate and medical and scientific advances and discoveries to sway Christians away from exercising their spiritual authority over the enemy, that they, especially in the ways that they're affecting people's mental and physical health, so much that we leave it up to you know, science and, and medicine to uh, heal and to solve all of our problems and using psychotropic medication and, and things that our world has begun to rely on when really what they need is spiritual deliverance. I believe prescriptions and medicine has their place. Medicine is a gift from God. God's blessed us with some incredible doctors and, and uh, in our modern science, but I wouldn't want to go back to the days where they would cover you in leeches in order to suck the sickness out. I think that's horribly disgusting. Um, and so I'm thankful for penicillin and over-the-counter medication. It's a great thing. But there's a vast amount of people that are living with these destructive and dom uh, dominating illnesses that science isn't going to figure out. The science isn't going to be able to solve or, or heal. People continue to have these uh, depressions and, and these, uh, these things that they struggle with day in and day out and no amount of medicine and it doesn't matter how many times they switch their medication, nothing ever is solved because Satan is the one laying claim to their life and what they really need is a spiritual deliverance. But since no one seems to have the faith to stand up and take back the ground the enemy has stolen, Satan's been left to continue his work, his plans in so many lives. The church is too busy singing songs in here than exercising authority out there. That's why Jesus said, I'd rather you do mercy than offer sacrifices. 
Jesus told his disciples that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. This is a symbol of medieval warfare where, where armies would advance on a, a stronghold or a keep and they would bash in the gates in order to go in and conquer the enemy and plunder the kingdom. It's language that insinuates an advancing army. Jesus said the gates of hell, in other words, the kingdom of darkness, will not stand against the church. But before those gates can be knocked down, the church has to rise up and go knocking. Let me ask you this question. Why do you think you struggle with the same sins day after day? The same sins. The answer is because Satan has got a foothold in your life. Just because you believe in God doesn't free you from the sinful nature. It doesn't free you from the work of the enemy in this world. He's at work and his greatest target is the believers in Christ because they're the only ones that can make a difference in this life and in this world. Why do some suffer from depression, anxiety, and thoughts of suicide no matter what medicine that they take and they can't get relief? Is it physical? It could be. But it also could be because Satan has give, been given access to them and a spirit is oppressing them. And as long as we ignore or discount the work of the enemy in the world, he'll be free to work as he pleases. Satan's plan is to steal, kill, and destroy, according to John 10.10. That's what his kingdom is all about. But the kingdom of heaven has a different purpose. John 10.10 10 says, The thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy, but my purpose, this is Jesus talking, is to give them a rich and satisfying life. God's purpose is to undo the work of the devil. Jesus said he came to give you a rich and satisfying life. God only wants good for you and not disaster. Do you suffer or struggle with thoughts of inadequacy and negativity? Have you contemplated your own demise? Those thoughts are not from God. Those thoughts are not from the Holy Spirit. Those are from the enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of heaven is that Jesus has claimed victory over sin and Satan with his blood, and he passes that victory onto you and me through our faith in him. Jesus continues his response about the kingdom of Satan in Matthew chapter 12, verse 27. He says, If I'm empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? They cast out demons too, so they will condemn you. Will they condemn you for what you've said? But if I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Catch this. Only someone even stronger. Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. Satan and his demons may be powerful. But today, if you are a child of God, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And we need to begin walking in that confidence that the one who is with us is more powerful than the one who is against us. And begin taking back the ground the enemy has stolen in his kingdom. We need to work to free our lives and free the lives of those who are far from God. God gave us the authority to wage the war using the sword that he came to wield in the world, to set the oppressed free, to heal disease, to cast out spirits, bringing spiritual freedom. 
If we are true believers in Jesus Christ, we really believe what we say we believe. We believe that Jesus will do what he said we will do. We believe that Jesus did what he said he did. Then we will respond by walking in his footsteps. We'll do the same as he did in the more. We'll go into the harvest and reap a great harvest. We will go out and fight the enemy in Jesus' name, saving anyone who will respond to the invitation to trust in Jesus Christ and be rescued from this, their sins and the power of the devil. So what does it mean then? What does it mean if we are not actively fighting against Satan's kingdom? What does it mean if we're not out exercising our authority and praying against the evil spirits in the world, praying for healing and casting out demons and taking back that ground in Jesus' name? Watch what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 12 and pay attention to this. In verse 30, Jesus says, Anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. See, it's not enough just to believe. It's not enough to say, I believe. If you are not out there fighting with Jesus through loving those who are far from him, preaching the kingdom, laying your hands on the sick, commanding the spirits to be out in his name when you're encountering those forces, if you're not preaching the message of the kingdom and demonstrating your faith, you are working against the kingdom of God, not with it. You're making Jesus' job even harder to save those who he knows are going to come to Christ. You're like a soldier who is armed and ready to fight, but refuses to cross the battle line and get into the fight. So God is having to waste resources trying to keep you safe in your comfort instead of using what he's given you to get out there and help him win the war. Our key verse today is found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. This is Paul speaking to the church of Philippi. He says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose. Read that next phrase with me. Fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Fighting together for the faith standing together with one spirit and one purpose. If we're not standing together, if we're not fighting together, we are a house divided, which will be too busy trying to sort itself out to pay attention to what's going on around us. Jesus has called us to be vigilant, to expose the enemy and expel it as we walk in faith. Just as Jesus prepares his disciples for battle and in the battle they're about to face, we also need to be prepared for difficulty in the spiritual war. Jesus continues in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. He says, when an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert seeking rest but finding none. Then it says, I will return to the person I came from. So it returns and finds its former home empty, swept and in order. Then the spirit finds seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they all enter the person and live there. And so that person is worse off than before. That will be the experience of this evil generation. And we live in this evil generation. The spiritual climate that we live in and the mission field we've been called to doesn't look like easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy. It doesn't look like comfortable, easy, laid-back, do-it-on-the-side religion. 
This is a war. This is a battlefield. And the moment we take ground back from the enemy, he's going to go reinforce and come back even stronger. It's like an addict who, who has a really good week in sobriety and then the next week is bombarded with the worst temptation and weakness that they've ever felt the next week. It's so vital in these dark days that we not only hold on to our core values as our church that we see in Scripture that is God's will for every believer, but that we work hard to live them out in our daily life. We have the value of wholehearted worship, which is fleeing from sin, not opening doors to the enemy so that we can give God all that we are, mind, body, soul, and strength. Unyielding truth, which is keeping the, the sword sharp and letting it shape our lives. Unceasing prayer is staying connected to God so that we can stay powerful to face the enemy and the toughest enemy. Unrelenting witness means we band together to take the fight to the enemy no matter what he throws our way, whether it's a spirit of depression or a spirit of fear, that we together declare victory over it in Jesus' name. We keep pushing forward with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that the kingdom of God is here and you can enter it through trusting and believing in Jesus. Intentional community means we work hard to build godly relationships so that together we can encourage each other and support each other in this fight against the enemy. In crazy generosity, we remember that we are called to love with the love of God and to give to others as freely as been given to us, that through generous love, that is the key to opening doors that we need to open in order to advance the kingdom of God in this world. It's not just to live out the values here, but to walk them out there, advancing the kingdom of God as we fight Satan and his minions together in unity, in faith, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if you are not with me, you are against me. The question I have for all of us today is, whose side will you be on? You cannot serve two masters. A house divided cannot stand. And today, I pray that you choose Jesus. Let's bow our heads together and enter an attitude of prayer in this place. We're going to do something that we don't normally do. But in just a moment, I'm going to invite you. If the Spirit of God is working in your heart, is speaking to your heart, I'm going to invite you to come down to the front. This is called an old-fashioned invitation. As we stay in an attitude of prayer, there's... Nothing magical about the front of the stage, but I believe when you step out in faith and you leave where you're comfortable to honor the Lord, God sees your faith and blesses your faith. And maybe you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ. You've never truly begun a relationship with God. You've never given God your heart and said, forgive me of my sin and be my savior. And today you know that you want to be on the Lord's side. You know that you know that you want to begin that relationship with Jesus. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you when we stand that you come down here and you allow me to introduce you to your Savior. So you can experience His love and grace as you become one of His children today. And maybe you're here today and you've been struggling with certain sins or a certain sin and you're tired of Satan possessing that ground in your life. I'm going to ask you to come forward and allow our elders to pray with you, pray over you, and lead you to begin fighting to take that ground back in Jesus' name, the ground that's been stolen from you. Maybe you've been suffering with illness. And you can't figure out 
what you're going to do next or where to turn to. And you would like us to pray for your healing. Maybe you've been having issues in your family and you'd like to just come down, uh, grab a friend or come down by yourself at one of these seats and just humble yourself before the Lord and pray intercessory prayer for your family. Maybe you recognize that what you've been battling against is some form of spirit in your life. Maybe it's a spirit of legalism. You have such a hard time getting over some of the traditions and rules that you know aren't biblically founded, but you just can't seem to get beyond them. You've been battling some spiritual blindness or some apathy where you just don't feel passionate for God or in your relationship with God. Maybe you've been battling some disbelief, and today you want to receive freedom from that oppression. I'm going to invite you to come and allow us to pray for you and with you. In just a moment, whatever the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart, when we stand, I'm going to ask you to take that step of faith. And let's begin doing battle for the kingdom of God in this place. Let's begin claiming our lives back in Jesus' name. Father in heaven, as you are in this place, God, you are speaking. Lord, you've prepared this message for us today. You've opened the, the veil and allowed us to peek into the reality of the war that we're in. God, open our eyes to the areas that we've been doing battle against the enemy that we've just not recognized. Open our eyes to the areas that we've opened doors and invited the enemy to come in through our sin and our refusal to repent. Let your Holy Spirit just fill this place now in Jesus' name. Let faith rise, God. And I pray, Lord, that you would do an incredible work in this place today as you set people free. Free from the oppression, free from the enemy. And you set us free to go out into the world as your ambassadors, as your witnesses, in the authority of Jesus Christ, so that we can work to set others free. Lord, we just commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stay in an attitude of prayer. If you would like or you feel like you need to respond to the word of God, then you come now. Let's all stand up together as they sing.